Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. This morning's scripture is from Matthew six nineteen through 24. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The grass withers and the flower fades. Thank you, Susan. And also, uh, speaking of bingo, we got bingo this afternoon at uh, Frontier Health. And then, Wendy, do we need to drop off like quarters? Is she gone? Quarters or dollar bills with the kids Saturday night? They're not ga- no gambling. Okay. I'm gonna get in trouble for that. All right, kids, uh, you can go to Elevate. Or uh, second, third, fourth, no, third, fourth, fifth grade, we have EGC, uh, Elementary Gospel Community, which is out here, where they're going to be going through and continuing to go through uh, the New City Catechism and learn and talk and do that. And we're going to be in here talking about money. So I'm glad you showed up today. I tried to give the warning last week. And people still showed up, uh, which is good. All right, some of you, um, some of you might be old enough to remember a movie that came out in 1991. Now, for those of you who are old enough, I want you to know that was not 10 or 15 years ago. (laughs) That was 32 years ago. Okay, Uh, 32 years ago, it was a movie called City Slickers. Yeah, it was Billy Crystal and then Marv from from Wet Bandit, one of the Wet Bandits of of Home Alone fame, and then then another guy. And uh, they are kind of wealthy Manhattan yuppies. And I told that to my wife, she's like, do people still use the term yuppie anymore? And I don't know. Do people still, all right, they were wealthy Manhattanites, right? They lived in the city, and they go, turning 40 is this like, like all of a sudden, this having to explore life and figure out all this stuff. And so these three guys, these three friends, they go out to the middle of Arizona or New Mexico or somewhere, and they pay money to lead a cattle drive through the desert regions of Arizona. And they're going out, and, and they paid to do this. And they're riding horses, and they're leading cattle, and they're discovering 
their inner child and trying to whatever, whatever, whatever. Um, and, uh, and there's this old cowboy, this old cowboy, Curly, who like, he rolls his own cigarettes and he's able to have a full conversation while keeping the cigarette in his mouth. You guys remember that? It's Jack Palance. And he's like, whenever he talked, if you haven't seen it, you don't remember it. But he talked like he was the epitome of cowboy. And every word that he said came with a little gasp at the end of it. Right? All still with the rolled cigarette in his mouth. And um, Curly, the old cowboy, spoiler alert, he dies in the middle of this movie. Um, so uh, if you were holding out to see that, uh, you had 32 years. But... <laughs> He's the one that's supposed to be leading these volunteers through and helping them with the cattle drive, and he dies. So they have to lead the cattle in the rest of the ride, and, and, and it's kind of their, I guess it's not coming of age. I don't know what it is when we're 40 and still can't figure things out. Um, but uh, anyway, in the middle of the movie, uh, Billy Crystal is talking with Curly, and, and he, gives, he gives some advice to Billy Crystal on the secret of life. Right, this, this good old, rough, rugged cowboy in the secret of life. Anybody remember what, what he said was the secret of life? All right, some of you do. This. This is the secret to life. I remember being a kid in high school in 1991 and going, what does that mean? Turns out they never tell you what it means, but... Is essentially, what it is, is, is one thing. Find one thing. One thing that you're focused on. One thing that's important. One thing that you're going to devote your life to and that, that you are going to. One thing that makes you happy or whatever. Find that one thing and then let the other things kind of pile around it, but, but focus on, on that one thing. Uh, and it's not terrible. It's not terrible advice. Like, but but uh, we, will, we will baptize it here just a little bit. Uh, in a similar way, Jesus is going to give us some words of wisdom from an old first century Jewish rabbi cowboy uh, about, about what, we are, what we are focused on. Some of it's an encouragement, some of it's a, it's a, it comes with an encouragement and a warning. Where are our eyes set? What are we pursuing and beholding and even worshiping? And when we see that, how does that shape everything else? What, like, what's this? Um, and how does that change everything? And, and he's going to conclude this whole thing with, we will serve one master. There will be one master that, that everything else bows down to. There will, be, there will be one ring to rule them all. The old hobbit cowboy said that. Um, there will, be, there will be one master that we serve, uh, and, and it will require everything. Regardless of what master we are serving, it will require everything. And so Jesus has given us eyes to see here, a little bit of warning, but also a, a command. Um, there's basically three separate teachings here in this passage, but they all kind of point to the same thing. They all, it's this kind of culmination of everything that Jesus has been talking about through the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 5, the thou shalt nots, when he's saying, don't just do these things and think that that's what makes you righteous just because you don't do these. If your heart is wicked, you're still, you're still wicked. But then in chapter 6, he's like, all these spiritual practices, 
when you do these, that doesn't make you righteous either. If you, if you are, the, the list of do's and the list of don'ts are not the technicalities of the law. And so you get this culmination uh, of all these practices that he just talks about in chapter 3. Um, and what he's going to end up telling us, our lives will be devoted to what we love the most. It will be devoted, and it may not be evident to everybody else. We can fool other people, but, but it will be evident to us. We, we know, we have awareness, we have self-awareness to go, this is what I love most. And so Jesus, and, and when we're talking about money, hear me on this. My goal for this morning, I don't want to be, there's two things that I want, I want us to uh, pay attention to. Jesus does talk about money. Maybe there's just one thing. Jesus does talk about money. But also guilt is a terrible, terrible, terrible motivation. And so my goal this morning, guilt, will, it will accomplish. Guilt and shame will get the job done. But it's, they're terrible motivations. So this morning, I don't want to like be guilt-laden. But at the same time, I hope and pray that God like gives us eyes to see. Money is a terrible master. Um, so let's jump in to these passages. He starts in verse 19, and he says this, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there, where you, there your heart will be also. Now, as I was reading through this, different commentators and different, different uh Scholars had different takes on this passage. They said Matthew kind of changes directions a little bit here because he's just talked about giving to the poor. He's talked about praying and he's talked about uh, fasting. And he says, you know, when you do these things, don't do them this way. So he's talking about our heart issue. And then they kind of say that he changes directions here, which I, I think that's partially true. But also when you look at this, the more that I read over the week, the more this transition actually seems pretty natural. The kingdom of God that Jesus is ushering in here in the Sermon on the Mount, this is a different economy than the way that this world works. It's totally upside down in everything. It sees more, it sees that there's more at work than what we see right in front of us. Our giving, right? In verse 1 and 4. We're not giving so that we can be praised by other people. We're really not even giving so that we can fix poverty or fix others. And we're certainly not giving so that they will see us and and think that we're great, or even because it makes us feel good. There's something more at work. There's a reward that comes from giving that actually is seeing the face of God, caring for image bearers of God, and then, and then actually delighting in the Father who made us and who made all things, and, and reciprocating that the God of the universe has given us life. When we pray and when we forgive, Again, it's not for the earthly reward of people thinking that we're so pious. If, if that's a reward. <laughs> Man, that guy's holy. Look at how much he prays. Uh, it is, when we pray, it's a communion with the one true God. That God is not somebody that we have to, um, it's not somebody that we have to impress. It's not somebody that we can manipulate by our many words and our chants. In fact, he already knows what we need. And so the reward of prayer is actually communing with God himself. We are with him. There's more going on than we see. 
And when, and when we pray and we commune with God and realize and recognize that I am a sinner in need of grace and he has given me grace and reconciled even me, then that begins to work itself out in me. And who am I to withhold grace and mercy from anyone? And then when we, fra- uh, when we fast, when we practice the disciplines, we don't do that, again, for the praise of man or the admiration of man or to get noticed uh, by others. We're actually joining God in mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. We are, we are joining God in mourning for the, the evil, the danger, the wickedness that's still happening in our world, either in my own soul or in the world around us, violence, war, oppression. So we talked about last week. And when we mourn with God, we get the promise that he kicks off the entire Sermon on the Mount with in the Beatitudes. Those who mourn will be comforted. When we mourn, we experience the comfort of God. When we deny that, we forfeit God's comfort. So when we start talking about money and stuff, naturally we're going to start seeing that the kingdom of God still works differently. We're still going to see what are the rewards that we're seeking. Most of us kind of put the financial reward into everything, right? Blessing means financial reward. So if you do this in private, God's going to reward you financially. But here he's like, okay, let's, let, now let's talk, about, let's talk about wealth. Let's talk about finances. What are we seeking even there? Is our hope in the kingdom of this world or is our hope in, in the next world? Psalms are filled with warnings over and over and over again about the foolishness of earthly wealth to save us from anything. Psalm 52, 7 says, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but he trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. The word that's actually used here is, it's, is not money, it's mammon. Uh, and the word mammon has interesting roots. Uh, it's usually used in Hebrew for wealth, but it's actually an Arabic name, Ammon, A-M-O-N, also has some roots here, and that is trustworthy, which is interesting. Medieval um, writers and theologians personified Mammon as, Jesus kind of does that too here in the last verse, but they personified Mammon as the god of covetousness probably more accurate, the demon of covetousness. So it's, it's, it's not just money. It's more than that. And we'll, we'll hit that a little bit in the last couple of verses. So when Jesus says this, seek first treasures in, or, uh, don't store up treasures on earth, but treasures in heaven. Sometimes, and you may or may not have heard this, people have interpreted this, uh, they think treasures in heaven and they think here, on earth, we just need to share the gospel and we're building this big mansion for ourselves up in heaven. Or endure with your siblings or endure with whoever and, and really what you're doing is you're bearing up treasures in heaven, right? Um, and some people look at that and they say, well, while we're on earth, we just have to, all we got to do is share the gospel, but it really doesn't have anything to do with my belongings or my treasures or my anything like that, my economy. Really what it's due is I'm, I am forfeiting, uh, I'm, I'm building up treasures in heaven by sharing the gospel. And, and this stuff is kind of off to the side. This is untouchable. And I want to tell you that could not be more wrong. 
I want to tell you that with grace. Um, the question that's posed to us here, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get into a little bit of technicalities here because I want us to see that Jesus actually, when he calls all of us, as Joel said, when he calls all of us, this is our weekly reminder that we talk about every time we give the offering, all of us includes our stuff. It is the kingdom of heaven now. And so uh, I'm, I'm going to chase rabbits here for just a minute, but hang with me, all right? Because I want us to see what this, how this starts to apply. Um, Jesus is posing the question to us, some self-reflection or awareness. He gives us both a prohibition and then a positive command to bring our attention of which kingdom are we actively pursuing. Which kingdom with our stuff, with our time, energy, efforts, with our money, which God are we actively serving and putting our trust in? Jesus doesn't say, this means you'll be poor. Or this means if you're poor, you're more righteous. He doesn't say that. But he also doesn't say this. This is how much money you can make and still be holy. Right? Because what if we just covered in chapter 5? Okay, so technically then, technically, let's say 65000 is the limit adjusted for inflation of what Jesus said. So then I got all these business write-offs. That's not, that's not income. That's business write-offs. And then we have, you know, or whatever. Like we would find ways around it. So he doesn't give us a defined amount of do this and this is what's holy. There's open doors. There's ways that we can look at that. We can follow technicalities of the law and still violate the true meaning of the law. We can give lots of money to charity and still be extremely greedy. So if Jesus gave us a certain amount, we'd find ways to manipulate it. So what does he mean? What does he mean? Where are you laying up your treasure? we got to apply this in our culture. We, 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 can't, we can't go back to a first century culture. We, we have to understand what it meant back then, but we can't just say, like, well, Jesus wore sandals, so we should wear sandals, and that's what's holy. Just trying to set the example, right? Um, so when we set it to our particular day, it can be a little tricky. It just can be. Um, because the Bible doesn't line up with any modern-day current economic systems or theories. And yet, when we look at economic systems and theories, we can find, uh, we can actually find some good in a lot of them. And we can also find some bad in a lot of them. Scripture recognizes, so here's where everybody, everybody stay in your seats, all right? Strip, scripture does recognize private property and ownership. So there's merit of self-sufficiency. There's merit of helping people take responsibility for their assets. And yet, there is no possible way to read the Bible where everybody, every individual gets to see their money as theirs. This is mine. And not with the responsibility of communal care and giving to those who have need. Whether it be family, me, to restorative economic responsibility. So he calls us to give to anyone who, ha who may have need. Um, we have laws. Government is necessary. That's good. No amens and nobody getting up and leaving. All right, good. Government is necessary. We have laws that are in place that in the redemptive form are supposed to protect uh, those who are vulnerable. 
That's what the, the point of laws are. They're, because uh, we can't just expect everybody to have a heart change. And so there are laws that protect people in, in vulnerable places, which is what laws are for. And like streets and roads and things like that. And yet, and yet, it is incredibly naive to think that politics and policies alone can solve poverty. They can't. That's beyond their capability. If we could solve, money, if we could solve poverty with money, I think we'd have done it by now. So we can see good and bad. In our world, we have a capitalistic consumer culture. So spending money, spending money is actually part of how our world works. So like saying, well, we're not going to spend any money and we're going to heap it up. Workers rely on us spending money. That's complicated. Or we can spend frivolously and like, you know, we're, we are just massively in debt trying to pay off a credit card every, that we get points on. So how and where do we spend our money? Do we spend it all on us? Are we generous? Are we generous with our tips? I did see a TikTok video of a guy taking communion, and then he turns around, and the priest had an iPad with a tip thing on it. <laughs> and he goes, he goes, you too? I thought that was funny. We're not, we're not there. All right. Are we generous with our tips? Do we hire this is uh, do we hire workers and laborers at a fair wage or are we always do we cheap out and look for discounts and favors? I had to say that one, but I'm getting it out of the way because that's me. Is there a cultural narrative? There, there is a cultural narrative in our world that people who are in poverty that we equate poverty and laziness. Uh, and I just want to tell you, some of the hardest workers I know who work two or three jobs are, are below the poverty line. And consequently, I know a whole lot of lazy people who have plenty of money. So let's please over-examine that narrative. Well, if they just worked harder. Mm -mm. That, is a, that is a horrible cultural narrative. Are we generous with our money, with our time? Are we generous with our attitudes toward people that may disagree with us on this? Or on the flip side, are we careless with our money? Do we spend far more than we should? Do we spend money on entertainment and luxury for ourselves? Do we only give to things that get recognized? Or can we give our time and money in ways that nobody else may see? Um, a friend of mine, she used to be a professor at Lindenwood. Uh, and when it comes to, so I'm, I'm, a, I'm above my pay grade here that because of the rise of global markets, right, free enterprise, global markets, so whoever you think is the chief enemy of all man, whether it's the corporations or the government, this is the corporation, right? So because of the rise of global markets, you ready for this? Abject poverty, which get over the definition of that, I don't have a firm number for what that means. Abject poverty worldwide has fallen to 8%. That's stunning. That is stunning. Now, my first objection is, yeah, but the gap. The gap between the rich and poor. 
which is, I think, fairly valid. But here's what she encourages her students to, to do. Don't worry about the few people that have the super yachts. Let that go. Here's what that means. Think about the billions of people whose kids can now go to school instead of go to work, who have access to antibiotics that will allow them to live longer than five years. Think about women who can choose education and a career as a teenager as opposed to marriage and pregnancy as a teenager. This is not me, this is not me saying things against marriage and pregnancy, but as a teenager, which is ripe with possibilities for abuse and neglect. The marketplace, our view of economics, it doesn't have to be antithetical to addressing oppression and injustice. When, when we are able to kind of get past the rhetoric of, of again, choose, choose your enemy and be careful how evil we have to make our enemy, right? When, when either, either corporations or politics, when we can get past that rhetoric, it's actually a pretty, pretty strong fight against both oppression and injustice. Safer neighborhoods have resources, by and large. Jesus calls us to view our treasures on earth with a kingdom mindset. And again, I would argue against just viewing this as money, but it certainly includes money. How are these laboring toward kingdom values? How do we use these in laboring toward kingdom, toward human flourishing? How is our view and use of money and our stuff and our talents and our wealth, however great or little, how are we moving toward human flourishing? And lest we, be, lest we miss this, the greatest peak of human flourishing is also the hope that followers of Jesus bring to the table, which is the act actually the possibility of being forgiven and reconciled to God himself. We don't simply care about the economic good of a person. We care about the holistic good of a person. And we can't focus on material needs to the neglect of spiritual needs. And God help us if we say, well, you just need the gospel, but I'm going to let you go hungry. And the irony, though, if we are just helping people with building up treasures now and never even presenting the hope of a possibility of reconciliation with God himself. And yet, to be careful, we've been talking about this in our, in our generous justice in the class on Sunday morning, so I'm, I'm trying to not overlap too much for everybody that sat in there, but like, follower of Jesus, don't you ever hold out a gospel presentation with the bait of food. I will give you this food if you'll sit and listen to me tell you about Jesus. Don't you dare do it. Give food generously because Christ compels you. If you want to, if you want to say, Jesus compels me, it's the grace of Jesus, enjoy. That's fine. But don't you ever say, I will give you this if you listen first to my gospel presentation. Okay? I sit here again, I say this in love. And if you've ever done that, be freed. Man, be freed. Okay. I have no idea where I'm at here. When, we, when both of these things are in play, when they're working together, we're not just living how we want because we trust Jesus to get to heaven when we die um, so we can hoard all of our money and follow the do's and don'ts and be good Christian people, but we also get to drive whatever we want and live in luxury. 
but it also stops us from simply being cultural warriors who work for progress while providing no hope for the world to come. Pursuing the kingdom of heaven doesn't mean that the here and now doesn't matter. In fact, when we're pushed by the ethics from beyond, when we're pushed by the kingdom of heaven ushered in on earth as it is in heaven, the here and now matters even more. So what do we put our time and money toward? Where do we put our investments? Is it the kingdom of me? Is it to the service of mammon? Or do we invest joyfully and generously into God's kingdom? With compassion, serving others, giving generously, graciously, understanding what we have is not ours to hoard, but we have the king's stuff, and he has bid us to be good stewards and generous of his stuff. All right, I promise the next two are much faster. Jesus looks, he helps us to narrow down our focus by helping us see, pun fully intended, that we are nourishing these desires in our pursuit of his kingdom by what we are fixing our eyes on. So verse 22, he says this, the eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light, but if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Jesus often paints the distinguishing between these two kingdoms, kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of this world, whatever that looks like. Um, he often uses that stark difference between light and dark. So then the eye, especially when it comes to the passions of the flesh, this is how we feed our soul, right? The mouth is how we feed our stomach, the eye and what we fix our eyes on, this is how we feed our soul. What we look at with desire. And unfortunately, in our day, I don't know if anybody else has noticed this, you can even like think of something. I don't even know how the technology works, but you can think of something you're like, that might be interesting to have. And all of a sudden it shows up on your social media feed. <laughs> I don't even know how the kingdom of darkness works, but I know that's part of it. What Jesus helps us avoid here in our day by phrasing these commands the way he does, again, he doesn't give us a technical do and don't list. He doesn't say if you spend less than $100 a month on superfluous stuff, then you're, you're good to go. Proverbs actually talks about a righteous rich and a righteous poor and an unrighteous rich and an unrighteous poor. The distinction between righteousness and unrighteousness is not how much money you have, but it's about what you want. It's about what you're actually pursuing. When we see money, whether in our abundance or our lack thereof, as the answer to our problem, when that happens, we'll never have enough. I, I use this often. For an insecure pastor, the church will never be big enough. For, for a, a worried, financially worried person, you will never have enough money. It's not to say that money's not important. It's very important. It is a good gift from God. That's why we're so tempted to treat it like God. This is why we're called to give generously and joyfully and care for those in need. But money is not ultimate. So be careful little eyes what you want. Be aware of what we look at and say, I need that. Not like, I need that tool to fix this, right? But like, that is the answer. 
especially since we live in a world of marketing and consumerism that suggests that every item that you see in the store is the answer to life. How have you made it this far without Cheetos or whatever? And listen, we participate in this. You're going to buy stuff that you don't need. But how do we become aware? How do we see the kingdom of God at work and what I buy? How am I seeing God's kingdom? Joel said this earlier. Like, how do I see even the stuff that I have? How does that invite community? How do I use my car, my house, my stuff, my gas mileage? How do I use these things? How is it more than just about me? Feeding people, building community, showing love, serving others, caring for the hurting, demonstrating the love of Jesus, not just consumerism, but kingdom. And finally, Jesus is going to get to the heart of all of these, and he's going to say, because you can only serve one master. No one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Mammon will ask for everything you have and just a little bit more. Jesus is going to personify greed and covetousness. Again, this is more than just money. Some of us covet money, for sure. Some of us covet freedom from responsibility. I just want to be able to do what I want. I just wish that money wasn't an option. <laughs> me, me too. Me too. That'd be awesome, right? Um, some of us covet stuff or experiences or entertainment. Mammon is generous in its application. It covers all this ground. Mammon pulls at our hearts and our disordered desires and suggests that everything is what we need, but nothing is enough. We could always use just a little bit more. When we worship and serve God, we're more consumed with seeing and serving and building his worship and serve mammon. The people around us become tools or obstacles to our worldly success and happiness. I'm going to finish by telling the story of two different companies and their pursuits. Okay? Nobody throw anything at me in the first one. 2013 interview with Jeff Bezos. Uh, he, he was at that time the CEO of a small company you guys may have heard of, um, Amazon. He was very excited to announce brand new technology that would revolutionize their delivery service. He talked about how much money they had to spend on shipping and the cost of using the U.S. Postal Service and UPS, and this new system would be automated and efficient and would save a lot of money. Anybody remember what? It's actually come back in the news the last couple days. Anybody remember what it was? Drones. Drones. Technology. Which is kind of cool and kind of creepy. <laughs> Honey, the drone is here. Um, he was giddy at how these machines were going to revolutionize Amazon delivery. And he gave kind of a timeline, and some of the timeline involved working out GPS issues, which is funny because that is one of the biggest gripes of what he replaced the drones with, which was humans. Um, but also, it was going to be at least a, a year of working out FAA approval for all the system to work. Well, FAA approval actually took two years, 
Um, and if you haven't noticed, we still don't have drones delivering our Amazon packages because in the meantime, he found an alternative, just as cheap, just as efficient. Humans, with relentless delivery schedules, increased demand for packages, metrics that were, so, that were virtually unbearable. Some drivers would report having to carry empty milk jugs in their vans to use as a bathroom. The pursuit of mammon reduced humans to tools and machines. Another story, Alan Barnhart. Alan Barnhart had long felt a desire to be a missionary, but he increasingly knew that it was going to be his job, his calling to take over the family business, uh, the, the company in Alabama, Barnhart Crane and Rigging. But before agreeing to take over the company, he spent two years studying what the Bible said about money, wealth, business, uh, all of that stuff. And at the end of this time of studying, he came to two conclusions. The first was this, God owns everything. This is not his, he is a steward. And the second conclusion, he needed to be very afraid and aware of the way that this potential wealth could lead him away from Jesus. So he took great pains working toward transparency, building in financial accountability for himself and for his company before he ever took the reins. And he said this, in my dad, in fact, I'm afraid they would actually congratulate me. So he established accountability. Any benefits from their company's growth would go to generous giving. Employees and others, rather than increasing the Barnhart's own personal lifestyle. For 23 straight years, their company had over 25% growth year after year after year. Every year they would set an amount beforehand that was enough for their company. Anything over and above that went to various kingdom works, ministries, and other charitable organizations to the point where for the last 10 years that they operated the company, they gave away over a million dollars a month. And this is in the late 90s. This is not now where everybody has a million dollars. This is like in the late 90s <laughs> where a million dollars was a big deal. The motto that he shared on how they ran their business was this. The army cook shouldn't eat a whole lot better than the troops. Those who generate wealth should not feel entitled to a different lifestyle than the rest of the body. They might need different tools, but our lives shouldn't look a whole lot different. They eventually sold their company. They, they actually didn't sell it. They actually gave it away to their charitable organization, and their charity actually runs the company. They gave it away in 2007. Mammon is all about the here and now. Mammon sees other people as tools or obstacles to our pleasure it is all about the promise that is right in front of your face. It is me. I should have what I want. And it will never be satisfied. It will never be enough. And you'll always need an enemy to create, to continue to pursue 
being and, and wanting, getting what you want. And also, mammon will never deliver what it promises. It will always leave you empty and wanting just a little bit more. The kingdom of God requires us to forfeit some of the pleasures of now for the possibility of a future hope. This is the only practice I have for you this week. I'm not gonna, you want to go like digging through your checkbook or your credit card? I don't know if anybody has a checkbook anymore. Do your credit card statement. And maybe just ask the question, how much is enough? What does it look like to be content in all circumstances? The great irony of Paul saying, I can, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength was not this dream to achieve statement. It immediately follows when he said, I've learned how to be content whether I have a lot or I don't have anything. I can face hunger and I can face abundance through Christ who gives me strength. It's not to feel guilty. It's, not about, it's also not about just being irresponsibility, but to ask the question, where, where is my treasure? Who is my master? How do I view my stuff? Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, that you are gracious uh, to all of us. This is not a litmus test that somehow we can achieve, but it is a calling to, to really observe and be aware. Where is my hope and my treasure? And do I see the fleeting things of now as my, as my treasure? Give us eyes to see. Um, help us to take the risk. I confess that I, there's, there's a whole lot of both hope and stress that I can see in finances. And you're not saying here to just be flippant and be irresponsible. You'd be a good, a good steward, but also to trust you. And how does every part of my life either put hope in this kingdom, in, in your kingdom, or in my own? So give us eyes to see. Give us a, a conviction to see where these, our desires are disordered, where we may be out of whack to be called to accountability and, pro and good stewardship, to open up our lives and maybe even let somebody else see what we, where we spend our time and our money and our, and our talent. Continue to work for your glory in and among your people and, man, even through your people, which is amazing to me. And do this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.